0: Right. good morning. The floor's more talkative than the upper section, looks like. So it is good to see you guys. Messiah, you back, yeah? Man, we miss you guys while you're gone. J-term is over. Glad to have you, you folks back. Uh, college girls, let me throw something out to you. I just thought of this uh, as Jessica was announcing about Bible study. One of the best decisions I ever made when I was in college, um, just you know, truth be told, I got really bored of being in college Bible studies with people my own age. Uh, because our prayer requests were always about the test, the next test that we had. And uh, just after a while, I just got bored with that. And so I was like, my senior year, I made one of the best decisions I ever made. I just went to the men's Bible study and the prayer requests changed to like, you know, I've got prostate cancer and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I learned what was probably in my future and uh, learned to just embrace, I don't know why I went there, but my point is, uh, it was really rich to get sort of outside the context of those four years of college for me, you know, and just say what's going on in real life with guys who are 30 years ahead of me, uh, 40 years ahead of me. It was just one of the richest experiences I had. So just for what it's worth, uh, we were just announcing women's Bible study. You know, guys, we have a men's Bible study every Friday morning, too. So for my college crowd, just maybe throw that out there for you guys to consider. It could be you could be really richly blessed by that, I think. So let me pray. We'll dive into God's word. Father, we love you. We love your word. We want it to sit in authority over us. We pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see today. You know where each one of us is. You've intended that we be here. Your sovereign hand has guided us through these doors, and so you have something for us today. We trust that that's true. We pray that you would uh, really just bring down our defenses, enable us to receive it. Father, I pray that you would make me faithful now to your word and to its authority in our lives pray, Lord Jesus, that you would instruct and teach us. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, just a little confession. When I was young, I really was like, I was nerdy. I was into um, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Anybody else into that sort of thing? Awesome. Some of you are nodding your heads and the rest of you. Some of you don't want to admit it, but it's okay. It's all right. So, I, you know, like... Uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Loved that, right? Loved all the Sword in the Stone, all the different legends of King Arthur and Lancelot and Guinevere, and all the, you know, if those names don't mean anything to you, they're, you know, whatever. So I really was, I like those stories. I like those legends. And I like to sort of the, the picture of Camelot that was painted and all those sorts of things. And in 1995, a movie was released called First Night First Night with Sean Connery as King Arthur. That's a good King Arthur right there. Uh, Richard Deere as Lancelot, not as good. Not as good. Uh, Julie Ormond playing Guinevere. And it was really a retelling of that whole of the Arthurian legend, right? As a retelling of that. And there were great lines in that movie. I mean, lines like this. I had to write this one down to remind myself. Lines uh, by Sean Connery as King Arthur saying, either what we hold to be right and good and true is right and good and true for all humanity under God, or we're just another robber tribe. It's a good line. You recognize that's a statement of a belief in moral authority, right? Like th- that, that quote probably doesn't show up in a movie written in 2016, I would guess. I would guess. So I, I love that. There was a quote though that stuck out to me. And as I was preparing our text and just thinking about and praying about what God's word had for you this week, my mind immediately went back to this quote from this movie, First Night, uh, 21 years ago. And it is uh, Queen Guinevere, Julia Ormond's Guinevere says that she loves Sean Connery's King Arthur because, she says, he wears power so lightly. You know, King Arthur possesses significant power, and what she says she loves about him is that he wears that power lightly. Isn't that a beautiful turn of phrase? What she means by that is that he doesn't use his power to abuse or harm others. He uses it to help the defenseless. He uses his power to help those in need, the least of these. He doesn't wear it ostentatiously as if to say, look at me, I possess authority and power. And I think that probably the reason that quote stood out to me and to where I didn't have to go back and look it up and it it was in my memory bank. And I'd love to say it's because I have a great memory. That's not true. I think it was there because we recognize that so often power is not wielded well. Power is not uh, worn lightly, according to that phrase. You you probably know the phrase, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, right? That's a common phrase. You've heard it. And we live in this idea that power is really a dangerous thing. I mean, to, just at the risk of nerding out completely, okay? We've gone from King Arthur now to how about Lord of the Rings, right? The, the whole idea, wow, I even got like a woo and a, yeah, absolutely. It's always interesting to me what kinds of things are going to get what reaction from you guys. I just never know. Uh, the whole premise of the movie, the whole premise of the movie is that there is a ring of power uh, and that, that great armies from all different types of peoples are trying to possess this ring of power so that they can rule over all of, the, of Middle Earth. And in fact, if you've watched it and you go back, there's a great opening scene at the, at the beginning of the first movie. Uh, I forget, I think it's maybe Kate Blanchett who's reading the dialogue. And she says that the rings are given, says nine rings were given to the kings of men who above all else desire what? Power, Right? So we live in this world where this this pursuit of power, the pursuit of authority, and then the inability to wield it well, the fact that it gets abused again and again and again is really front and center for us. And I would say that I think the result of that, at least one of the results of that, is that we become skittish when it comes to power, when it comes to authority. We become skittish about the authority that we were meant to possess as ministers of the gospel. Now, as we've worked through 2 Corinthians We've come now to our landing spot, our, our last chapter in the entire book. But one of the things we've been looking at again and again as we've moved through the book is this idea of what does an authentic minister of the gospel look like? The assumption, of course, behind that statement is that authentic ministers of the gospel possess a certain type of authority that inauthentic ones do not, or that those who are not ministers of the gospel at all do not possess And I would argue this. Here's what I want you to think about as we move through our text today. We're gonna ask a question. The question is this. What does authority when it is, what does the authority of a minister of the gospel look like when it is brandished well, when it is used well? How can we do that? How can we become people who use our authority as ministers of the gospel effectively and appropriately? That's an important question. How do we use power authority appropriately and effectively. But I, I, want you to, I want you to think about something with me for a moment as we try and answer that question. One of the things I want you to know is I think that our skittishness around power, our skittishness around authority causes us to not step into the authority that God has given to us as ministers of the gospel. And you may think that that's a safe place to be. You may think to yourself, well, you know, I would rather sort of be skittish about it and not step into the authority that I have as a minister of the gospel than to misuse my authority as a minister of the gospel. But friends, I want you to know something. That's an attempt to play it safe. And do you know, do you know that to abdicate your authority as a minister of the gospel is equally as bad as abusing your authority as a minister of the gospel? I want you to, I want you to grasp that. Because I think many of us think if I play it safe and I don't, as long as I don't abuse my authority, I will get to, the, to heaven. I'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. My friends, you will be held accountable for how you use the authority that you have as a minister of the gospel. And make no mistake about it, you have authority as a minister of the gospel. You are intended to use it, to wield it, to wear it lightly, and to make effective inroads for the sake of the gospel in this world and among your brothers and sisters. And so have in mind as we think about this now, have in mind as we think about what it means to wield our authority well, Have in mind not just the authority to correct. That's what we're gonna see in our text. We're gonna see that Paul is using his authority to correct the Corinthians. They are in need of possibly even discipline. It's a word of warning to them. And that is an aspect of authority when we wield it as ministers of the gospel, that we might need to bring a word of correction. But I have in mind more than just the authority that we use and harness to correct when someone has gone wrong, I have in mind the authority to speak words with authoritative voice into one another's life, words of encouragement, words that edify, words that cast vision for one another, to get our eyes up off of our immediate context and circumstances and onto the things of God, onto his eternal purposes. How many times have you been in a situation where you've been with a brother or sister in the Lord and they are in need of a word from the Lord? You can tell it, they are... They are drowning or they are, they are just exasperated, exhausted in need of someone who can have an authoritative voice in their life to say with confidence what God's purposes are and how you see him at work in their lives and you find yourself coming up short or maybe afraid to press into that and offer that kind of encouragement, that kind of authoritative word from the Lord that would say, he's not done with you. He hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's not against you. He's for you. To speak with that kind of authority, my friends, here's what I find more and more as I visit with, with people in the faith who are followers of Jesus is that we feel quite often very incompetent to exercise authoritative voice in one another's lives. There's a number of reasons for that. Particularly, I mean, when it comes to correction, you can, you can think of it this way, right? Uh, there was probably a day and age where John 3.16 was the most well-known Bible verse in, in our culture. Not just in the church, but probably at large. You know, you'd see it at the football games on the signs. And people would typically know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? It's a good word. That has probably been replaced by Matthew 7, 1 as the most common Bible verse. I bet you can complete my sentence for me. Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Or that you be not judged. That's a very popular Bible verse. And most of us are familiar with it uh, and have some idea of like, okay, and so I don't wanna offer a word of correction or speak authoritatively into someone's life because I've been told to judge not. We may have forgotten what 1 Corinthians five twelve says. Are you guys familiar with 1 Corinthians five twelve? Probably not. Actually, that sounded too snarky. Sorry. <laughs> I mean to belittle you. Um, let me tell you what 1 Corinthians 5:12 says. It says, "What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Well, now, wait a minute. Matthew 7:1 just said, "Judge not." But then in 1 Corinthians 5:12. <laughs> I'm told to judge. And by the way, if you wanna throw an extra little uh, cherry on top, check out Romans 14, 13 this week. If you're in life groups, you know, uh, you'll work through the questions this week. One of the questions I'm gonna put in front of you is how do you differentiate between those two things? Because either the Bible is contradicting itself there, which I'm gonna argue it does not, or there's something about the context of those two commands that tell us that at points it's appropriately to bring judgment, 1 Corinthians 5:12, and at times it's inappropriate to bring judgment lest we be judged. Matthew 7:1. And learning to distinguish between those two things is very important. Most people in our world know Matthew 7:1. Very few know 1 Corinthians 5:12. It's one of the reasons we, we don't typically step into the authority that we have as ministers of the gospel, particularly when it comes to bringing a word of correction which is often pushed off by saying, don't, don't judge me. Now, I said the question we're gonna try and answer today is this. I'm gonna give you four thoughts on this. How can we use our authority as ministers of the gospel effectively and appropriately? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, let's go. Look with me. Verses 1 through 14, the entire chapter, only 14 verses. Let me say two. We'll put the words on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you today. But I would encourage you to bring your Bible with you. It's just good to get your hands on the text, be able to mark in there if you need to, and keep your eyes grounded in it. All right, here it says, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three Witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. These are Paul's concluding words to the Corinthians in his last letter to them. Uh, And I wanna, as I said, I wanna walk you through now four things that this text teaches us about taking up our authority as ministers of the gospel. The first is this. To exercise authority, you have to believe in its legitimacy. In order to exercise authority, you have to believe that, it, that such a thing as authoritative uh, and legitimate authority exists. And so that's where we begin. Look with me at verses 3 and 4, okay? Now, actually, before we go there, let me point this out. Here's what you can do as you read through this text. Clearly you get the picture that Paul is pretty confident that he has authority that is meant to be used in the lives of the Corinthians. He's telling them in verses one and two, I'm gonna come to you again for the third time. No charge should be established against someone. He's talking to them, except when there are two or three witnesses. In other words, I've kind of gone through the due diligence of the process of bringing a case against you, Corinthians, and I've been trying to warn you. And now he says in verse two, when I come, I will not spare those who are continuing in sin. Now, he doesn't elaborate on what he means by that. Probably it's an allusion to, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there was someone who was in sin and rather than deal with that sin and say it needs to be brought to an end, the Corinthians were essentially just kind of going, well, we'll live and let live, not worry about it. It's harming our church body, but we're just not going to deal with it because that's harder than actually dealing with it. And Paul writes to them says, you've got to deal with it. You can't just let that go on. And so they, they, we know that they did respond positively to that. So there's this idea, perhaps, of discipline that Paul is talking about when he says in verse 2, I, I'm going to come again. When I come, I'm not going to spare you now. I've been trying to warn you. But as he's writing, we certainly get the sense that he recognizes that he has authority and that he's going to now use that authority. He's going to wield it. Now, you could read that in our day and age, and you could say, well, that's Paul speaking as an apostle. So he's got authority that we don't have. I mean, he's an apostle. I'm not an apostle. Right, that's just one of the original, right? One of the original followers of Jesus who God said, "You're my disciples." And then Paul comes along as an apostle and kind of fills that that spot after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. So they have a unique authority. They're writing scripture. I mean, we don't have that kind of authority. Or perhaps we might say, "Well, okay, that authority that Paul's taking up is really the authority not just of an apostle, but it's like of church leaders, right? People that are that are in positions of authority within the church. So perhaps pastors, elders, they have that kind of authority. But that's not, that's not for me. That's not, that's not the authority I possess. That's the authority they possess. But lest we think that way, I want to point something out to you. Because again and again, I mean, multiple times, if you read Paul's writings, if you read his letters, he will often appeal to the fact that he's an apostle as a reason that he has authority. He'll say, I'm, I'm called to be an apostle. I have a unique position, uh, and you should listen to me as a result. But he doesn't do that here. Look at what he does in verses three and four. Probably the most complex uh, two verses in this text, but let's watch what he does. After he says, I will not spare them in verse two. Then in verse three, he says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Okay, pause. Here's what he's saying. The Corinthians are looking for evidence that the power of God is in Paul, right? And he's saying, look, you're looking for that evidence. They've been hounding him about it now for a while, It says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Now, here's what he's getting at. He's saying, Corinthians, you have seen God, Christ, do magnificent things in your midst. You've seen him heal. You've seen him raise people up. You've seen him do mighty works. And you're looking to me to do some of those same mighty works. Now, interestingly enough... In the chapter just prior to this one, Paul has already said, look, when I was with you, you saw me work miracles. So you saw me do the works of God, these powerful, miraculous sorts of things. And yet somehow that's not enough for you. You're still asking to see more works of power. That's the Corinthians' idea of what it means to be a minister of the gospel, to be able to do miraculous and powerful things, sort of showy acts of power. Here's how Paul responds to that. Verse 4 now. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. What, what has he just said? He says, you're looking, Corinthians, you're looking for these majestic displays of miraculous power. But don't you remember that Christ's resurrection power began with Christ's weakness at the cross? Back to that theme that we've seen again and again in this book, strength strength in weakness. You may think that strength looks this way. I'm telling you, strength in the gospel, strength in Jesus looks different than that. He's saying that the power of the resurrection was preceded by the weakness of the cross and and that that is a demonstration of servant-hearted leadership and authority that Christ was willing in meekness and in humility to go to the cross and that purchase His power, his resurrection power that causes him now to rule and reign and to be able to do all the things, Corinthians, that you love seeing him do. Raise the dead and heal the sick and make the blind able to see. All those things that you love seeing that are the results of the resurrection, they stem first from the weakness and the humility of the cross. You cannot separate those two things. Now look what he says, how he closes up shop here in this little section, these these two verses. So he says, He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in Him. But in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. In other words, what he's just said is this We have been weak in the same way that Christ was weak. We have been trying to, with our authority, demonstrate what it looks like to be meek and gentle and humble and to seek your upbuilding. To do everything for your good, nothing for our own good. In fact, our real authority comes from the fact that that's the way we have behaved towards you. That at every turn, we have tried to represent the weakness of the cross in the gospel in our authoritative leadership of you. And then the last phrase he's offering is to say this. But now, because you've left us no other option, he says, we will live with him. In other words, what he's saying is, that resurrection power that you delight in so much, when we come and we're not gonna spare you, we're going to demonstrate that kind of power. But you're mistaken in that that's the type of power you want us to demonstrate. What you should want is what we've been doing. You should want us to demonstrate the power of the cross by be, being meek and humble and gentle. That's where real power lies. You following me? So here's why that, here's why that pertains to us. It's why it's so important. Because Paul's not saying I have authority because... I'm an apostle, Paul is saying, I have authority because the gospel and the truth of the gospel saturates my life because every choice, every action, everything runs through the cross and then the resurrection. I'm not here for showy displays of power. I am here to serve and to lead and to lay my life down. Friends, here's what you need to know. You have authority as ministers of the gospel. You have authority as ministers of the gospel as your life aligns with the tenets of the gospel. It's not some, listen, it's not something that's sort of like, you know, maybe I do, maybe I don't. As you saturate your thinking and your actions with gospel truth and your life bears the marks of it, as Paul is talking about here, that fills you with authority, with authoritative voice. When I was young uh, and kind of early in preaching, um, I used to do a lot of disclaimer preaching. Uh, You guys know what I mean by that? Like I would begin sermons and begin points and just say, well, you know, okay, this, but this. Have y'all begun conversations that way where you're like, let me give you the disclaimer before I say the hard thing, right? Somebody's done that, please. Somebody's done that. Yeah, absolutely, okay, good. Yeah, those disclaimers like, well, I know that. that," And I had a a mentor, a good friend who was gracious uh, and, and kind, and he came to me and he just said, hey, Trent, you don't need to give disclaimers for the word of God. You don't need to give disclaimers for the authority of the word of God. The word of God has power. And then he was gracious enough to say this, I, you know, um, he was gracious enough to say to me and remind me, and you have authority as a minister of the gospel because your life bears the marks of the gospel. You're following faithfully. I know that's not always the case, but he was kind enough to remind me that there have been moments where I've followed faithfully and made good choices and, and strive, I can't say the word, strived after Christ to know him and that gives your life authority. It means your voice should have authority and you don't need disclaimers and you don't need to back away from it. You need to press into it. I'm really convicted that we live in a day and age where the world needs the voice of the church more than it's ever needed it and it's less able to see that it needs the voice of the church than it's ever been able to see it. So that's our challenge. The voice of the church, the people of God, is more needed, I think, in our day and age than it's ever been needed, and I think it is also now uh, least wanted, perhaps. But friends, don't you know, don't you know, that unless we learn to have authoritative voice, yes, to correct, but to encourage, to edify, to call to higher purposes, unless we exercise that authoritative voice in one another's lives, there's no reason the world would ever need to hear it from us. It begins within the house of God. It begins with the people of God, that we learn to speak to one another with authority. So, now let me say two more things about the, legitimate, the legitimacy of authority that we need to believe in if we're going to exercise it. Number one is this. Using authority to correct and giving grace are not mutually exclusive, Using authority to correct and giving grace are not mutually exclusive. I don't know if you caught it. At the end of the entire book, chapter, verse 14, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and then he goes, and the love of God, he goes on, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you. Now, think about that. He's just told them, I'm not going to spare you when I come. He's got to be frustrated. These people are a thorn and they're difficult. They are difficult to deal with. And yet he closes, it's not just a nice little sort of pithy phrase to close a letter with, like I gotta close it somehow, I might as well write the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He's actually saying to them, don't you know, don't you know that grace and correction go hand in hand? In fact, I would argue until, until someone has taken the authority to speak into your life a word of correction when you have needed it, you have not truly experienced grace. Because what is Grace. Grace is people loving you and leaning in in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it. Grace is people caring about your holiness in Christ, that you would bear the image of Christ more than they care about their comfort or not having conflict with you. The kind of grace that won't correct is a shallow, selfish, self-centered version of grace and we need a robust deep version of grace that is willing to press into the hard places, the hard conversations with an authoritative word that says, I am not going anywhere, I love you, I am for you, and we're gonna deal with this issue that's going on in your life. I'm gonna walk with you through it. I promise you, friends, Like you could, I, pro- I could go person by person right now and if you've experienced that kind of grace where someone loved you in spite of the fact that you were at your unloveliest, when you missed it by a mile, when you were, when you were willfully a jerk, not just accidentally a jerk, like when you were willfully like, I am, I'm going to intentionally cause harm because I'm angry, because I'm hurt, because I'm whatever. And someone moved into that moment with you and said, I got you, I'm not going anywhere. Now, let's talk about how we change that. That shatters your heart into a thousand pieces and says, that's what the love of God is like. And it will change everything. The other kind of grace, that shallow grace that just kind of says, like, oh, you know, it's like, just do what you do. What you do it's fine. You know, I don't want to judge you. Just keep on, keep on doing what you do. It's fine. I'm sure, I'm sure God will be merciful. I'm sure. That's a shallow grace. It doesn't do anything. Now, the second thing that we need to say about the legitimacy of authority is this, and then we're gonna hit the last points in your sermon notes pretty quickly. No legitimate authority, look, if no legitimate authority attempts to exercise itself without inviting the same type of authority into its own life. So that authoritative voice that God is calling us to exercise as ministers of the gospel in one another's lives also has to be received by us, right? We can't just imagine that we'll be the one, some of us like the idea of being the one to give correction. Uh, That's probably a good thing to be aware of about yourself, right? And if you like that, if you kind of ask yourself, is anybody doing that into my life? If not, you need to close your mouth, right? Now, point number two in your notes, spend the vast amount of your authority to build up, not to tear down. And when you have to tear down, restore. Look at verses nine and 10. Paul says, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Okay, what's he just said? Remember that in verses one and two, he said, I'm not gonna spare you when I come. And he said, there's been you know, multiple witnesses about what's going on here that needs to change. But then he comes to verses nine and 10, and he says, I don't want, in fact, I'm writing this letter to you so that I will not have to be harsh with you when I come. I so recognize that the point of the authority that I have, according to verse nine, is to build up and not to tear down. Now, when you hear tear down, don't think like to hurt somebody think to correct, right? He's saying, he's saying that the sole purpose for which I possess authority is to help you be built up in Christ. That's why it exists. And I will, if I have to, tear down so that I can restore if that's the only way in which you can be built up. Y'all know that there's a building up that can only happen after tearing down, right? And so he's saying, if I have to bring a word of correction, if I have to be hard, I will do that, but I will do that always, aiming at restoring you, and I will do it as a last resort. Honestly, he's not not quick to want to bring a word of correction and discipline to them. It seems as if he is being exceedingly patient. That's what he means in verses 1 and 2, and he says, look, this is the third time I'm going to come to you. I've been in, you know, I've got two or three witnesses that are establishing this charge against you and I'm even writing this letter so that you we might not have to go there cuz I don't want to go there. Now, what does this look like for us? Let me give you a few questions that are really pertinent for you to ask yourselves before you would ever bring a word of correction into the life of someone that God brings into your path. Okay, the first one is this, am I offering this correction out of love and because I want good for this person? Am I offering this correction out of love and because I want good for this person? That's an important thing to remember. Look, ask yourself the condition of your heart when it comes to this, because if we're honest, we recognize that sometimes we can fall into this trap of just liking being in the seat of correcting people. You're wrong and you're wrong. Let me tell you how you're wrong. And if that's you, if you find that that's kind of where your heart goes and leans, you need to ask yourself the question, am I aiming at building them up? Like Paul says here in verse 9, am I really truly, by bringing this correction, am I seeking their good? Do I want them to be built up in Christ? Or am I just taking pleasure in, in sort of correcting and tearing down? Have I been patient about it? Now, another question to ask ourselves is, have I been at least as frequent in the use of my gospel voice of authority to offer encouragement as I have been to correct. If you find that you're ready to correct and you haven't offered a word, like there's no track record, no history in your life of bringing a word of encouragement with your authoritative voice because that's part of what an authoritative gospel voice does. It doesn't just correct. It offers authoritative encouragement. If you find that that's the case, you might need to, Be patient about expressing your correction. Last question, is God asking me to serve this person by taking up an authoritative word of correction in their life right now? Two specific things about that question that are important. Is God asking me to, and on the back end, is he asking me to do it right now? Is this the right time, the right place, the right spot? Have I cultivated that? Often that has a lot to do with the relationship you've cultivated with that person. Are you the type of, this is why we we say this all the time around here at the church. We want you in in a place that's pretty big, we want you to press into smaller pockets with one another because we want you to live in community with people and give them permission to speak authoritatively into your life. We want you to grant that permission, and then when it's granted, we want you to take it. Now, there are times where it's appropriate to speak an authoritative word of correction even when you haven't been, sort of given permission. There are times where that's appropriate, but more often than not, God brings those opportunities to us in people's lives who have given us that permission and whom he has brought us around in relationship with, not unlike Paul and the Corinthians. Paul, in part, has authority because he knows the Corinthians well and has labored long over their lives. Third thing I want you to see about having a, an authoritative voice and using it well is that failing to use your authority Leads to eternal loss in others' lives. Look at verse 5. He says, Examine yourselves. He's inviting the Corinthians to examine themselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Okay, what's he saying there? He's saying, look, I mean, earlier in the letter, he's pretty complimentary of the Corinthians. He seems to be convicted that they are truly in Christ. But he is at least alluding to the idea here that we must examine ourselves because it's possible that we would deceive ourselves into thinking that we are in Christ when in fact we are not. The evidence, of course, would be that our lives and our actions don't align with the gospel itself. That we would say we believe something and give intellectual sort of acknowledgement of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, but in reality, that belief has not taken hold in our lives in such a way that it's any form of true belief. True beliefs always produce actions. True beliefs always produce actions. That's what Paul is getting at. He's saying, look, Examine yourselves. So one of the reasons Paul is speaking into their lives is because he doesn't want them to encounter the situation where they have begun to believe one thing about themselves that in fact is not true. And when they would come into the presence of God, he would tell them it's not true. And they would suffer eternal loss. And so Paul is willing to speak with boldness into their life so that they would not experience that kind of eternal loss. He recognizes that that is far more important than the discomfort that is created by speaking a word of correction to them, even in a hard way in this moment. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3, right? Remember back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 because there's, there's two types of eternal loss here. There's the type of eternal loss here that we're reading about where Paul is essentially saying, you may be deceiving yourself into believing you're truly a follower of Jesus when in fact you're not. And if that's not the case, I want you to be aware of it so that you can repent and turn to him and come to him. So examine yourselves. Test yourselves. See if you are in Christ. Notice the humility of that, by the way. He doesn't say you are or you aren't. He says to them, do what? Test yourselves. That's a good model, by the way, for us when you bring a word of correction. Ask a question rather than making a statement. Have you considered... That the path you're on might not be the best path. Have you considered that you have gone astray from what is true? That's a great way to approach someone with a word of correction rather than to say, here's the six things you did wrong. Take hold of that. Examine, invite people to examine themselves. Trust that the Holy Spirit will instruct and to teach Now, one kind of eternal loss is to think you're in Christ and to not be. The other kind of eternal loss is what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about, where those who will be saved, they will be redeemed and live eternally with God, but they will have spent their lives in such a way that they have built up treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven, and they will all get burned up when Christ comes back. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and Paul there, he says, and they will suffer loss but they themselves will be saved, though as through fire. That's the language he uses. In other words, you could spend your life in such a way that you would spend eternity with God in heaven, but there would be some form of loss that you would experience as a result of how you choose to spend your time. And ministers of the gospel use their authoritative voice to avoid that kind of loss in the lives of the people that they love. Deeply important. Last thing is this, and I want to wrap up because I want us to have time for communion and reflection. You Always have to measure your authority against the truth of God's word. You notice in verse 80 says this. He says, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. It's a real simple point, right? Paul is saying, look, the truth hymns us in. It tells us what our word of correction should be and what it shouldn't be. So when you're taking up an authoritative voice in someone's life, can I encourage you that everything you say needs to be measured against God's word. Everything you say needs to be measured against God's word. They don't need your opinions about how their lives should be different. Please, please, if you're writing stuff down, write that one down. They don't need your opinions about why the thing that they're doing is not a good idea. What they need is for you to be so steeped in and saturated in the word of God that you can speak with an authoritative voice to them, either a word of correction or a word of encouragement. I mean, gosh, you better be sure before you bring a word of correction that what you're trying to correct, actually the word of God itself corrects. Not just you don't think they're making a good choice. But when the word of God does correct it, you can speak with authority. Humility and graciousness, yes, but also authority to say that should change. Let's talk about it. The other side is this. When you're trying to use your authoritative voice to offer encouragement and to empower and help people see God at work in their lives, when you're trying to do that, do you know that people, especially when they're at their, at their toughest moments, they don't need you to give them empty platitudes about how everything's gonna be Okay. That doesn't help anybody. What helps people is when you point them back to the truth of the word of God, that God has purposes in suffering that he will accomplish, that God never leaves us nor forsakes us, that God is a loving father that works all things together for the good of those who love him. When we point people back to the authority of the word of God to encourage them and propel them forward, it is meaningful and powerful. Way better than just kind of you know, that pat on the back and that, like, I'm at a loss for words, so I'll just say something that sounds really nice, but really it's, it's, it's like vapor, it's empty. There's no weight behind it. Everything we say with our authoritative voice must, must be measured by the word of God. Where it affirms, we affirm. Where it corrects, we correct. Right. If you, I mean, truly, friends, if you want, if you want confidence If you want confidence that you can speak with an authoritative voice, the only way, the only true way to be sure that your voice carries authority is to know God's word. It's the only way. And then to align your speech with it. To say what it says and to not say what it doesn't say. That's how you have an authoritative voice.